Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Today, I'm talking with Jill Castle. Jill is an adventurer, an advocate, and an outspoken proponent of making a life for yourself, even when you're a parent and or if you have a lot of heavy responsibilities. She's evolved from a mom who did everything for her son with Duchenne muscular dystrophy to a mom who is okay letting go. She stopped apologizing for wanting her own life. She went from neglecting her needs and doing things on a grand scale and with expectations of perfection to now carving out a whole life for herself. She is fascinating, and she's unapologetic in her growth and her acknowledgement of her own role in her exhaustion and struggles. She lays it all out here today. She talks about doing the tough personal work, getting sober, leading with humility and honesty, and approaching happiness and joy as if it's an emergency. She is full of life and compassion and truth. She will challenge you, and she'll make you think. Let's get started. Hi, Jill. It is so good to have you here with us. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm really excited that we have a place to share some of the awesome things that you say and do. We're going to focus particularly today a message that you posted on social media that sparked a lot of positive comments to you, also a few not so positive comments. And it really caused you to start having some conversations and expressing yourself in a way that I just found so important and really insightful. And that that quote was, there is no greater burden on a child than the unlived life of a parent. And that can apply to anybody if they're a parent, but I think it's particularly important and poignant and meaningful to people like you and me who have a child with a progressive disease, a rare disease, anything really extra needs with our children. We sometimes have unlived lives. So talk to me about that, Jill, and why that hit you and and it made you want to share it with other people. Well, first of all, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work in this area. My son with Duchenne just turned 22 and I've really struggled from 18 when he graduated high school until now. I mean, they always tell us transitions coming, but I didn't really know what that meant. And I didn't even know, honestly, if I would see it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So I really just sort of filed it away for a later day. And then the later day came and I was of all people. I mean, I've been, and many people know I've been so enmeshed in the community and on the forefront of all the resources. And here I was completely unprepared. And so I think what started out is I've been doing a lot of work just personally on my personal growth and development. And I started to realize that we're programmed as young women that 
you know, we're all going to be mothers. You were never really offered a choice to that. And so from the beginning of time, I think what was always presented to me and the impression I always got and the value I created in my life was that to be a worthy woman, you need to be a good mother. I mean, you just have to be a good mother. And also the best mothers out there and the best women out there are selfless women, like women with no self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it started occurring to me. I mean, I just assumed, especially having a kid with Duchenne and then his sibling who I had to work extra hard for because we had Duchenne in our life, the two of them, I mean, I just felt like I wasn't enough unless I was literally giving 24 seven to them. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a lot of years. And, you know, my needs would come out sideways. You know, I would drink too much or I would do unhealthy things. My behavior wasn't very good. I became a total martyr, really, to be honest, because I had no other way to escape. I felt really trapped and alone and completely undervalued as a human being. Like my only point to being here was to take care of those two people. Mm -hmm. Jill, when you said martyrdom and you were giving 24 seven, a lot of people listening may be familiar with Duchenne, but if they're not familiar with Duchenne, what does that look like when you were devoting yourself completely to Anthony and his care? And then also trying to maybe compensate and give something to your other son at the same time. What did, what did that look like in action in your household? I mean, the workload was extreme. Because the other part to this is that many of us women still have to work, you know, I mean, just because we became mothers, it's not the, it's not the fifties anymore. So that doesn't mean that we don't have to work as well. I mean, some, Mm -hmm. some don't, but I certainly did. Sometimes I had two and three jobs just to get by. And my day, I mean, I hit the floor running, you know, I had to get up hours before they did if I wanted any quiet time. Because by the day's end, I was so exhausted, I was pretty much going to bed shortly after them. So I had no time to myself. The other thing, too, is just a lot of it was self-created guilt when I did take time. But, you know, there's hours and hours every week of medical things, making appointments, arguing with insurance, getting equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, I, by my own choice dove in head first and started helping other parents too, because I had spent so much time acquiring all these skills and resources and information. I felt like it was not, I mean, the only way to make sense of my life was to find purpose. And for me, the purpose seemed very obvious that if I know all this and it took me all this effort to find this answer, why would I not share that answer with everybody else? So they didn't have to torture themselves like I had. So Mm -hmm. it started out as a good and pure intention, but it also added to my workload because when I wasn't working and taking care of them, I was helping other people. I think Mm -hmm. some of that looking back, it was again, just trying to figure out how to make myself worthy of this Mm -hmm. life. What was the, because you're in a different place now, was there a particular moment? Was there a tipping point? Did it just sort of bury you and and you had a revelation one day, what was the shift for you to help get you to this other place or start 
a knowing that you needed to do something different? Yeah, about three or four years ago, it was in education. I was helping a lot of people across the country as a volunteer. I was a special ed director of seven charter schools for at-risk youth. I was teaching at ASU. Anthony was in high school. His brother was in high school. I was in an unhealthy relationship that had gotten unhealthy and, and I didn't really know quite how to get out of it. And I just literally, I was started having heart palpitations. I started having to go to the ER. I moved out of my living situation and broke off that relationship. And I went back to live with family so that I could heal and get myself together. And in the middle of all that, I had a really huge aha moment that is possibly going to be unpopular to say right now, but there's no way around it. I realized that deep down in my heart and my soul, and I don't know if this was a self-protective mechanism, which is possible because I've had to forgive myself for these kind of thoughts, but I had never thought about Anthony getting past high school. Yeah. I really didn't believe mm-hmm. he would. And when he did, I was horrified thinking, I don't think I can do this for 10 more years. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I didn't know it was going to be a marathon. I was told mm-hmm. from the day of the diagnosis, 12 to 20, 12 to 20, 12 to 20. And though I went to parent project conferences and I knew all the research and I fought to get him in trials and I fought to extend his life, I never really actually thought about what that life would look like mm-hmm. if I did. And I was kind of terrified. Like right now I'm visiting the ER every other day for my heart and I can't even hold these jobs together. And I, I, I have nowhere to live. I had to go back with family to get myself together. Mm-hmm. How the heck am I going to do 10 more years of this? I'm 50 years old at the time. It's a super, super important point though, Jill, because I've talked about this even with you know public policy agencies that in the world of rare disease, especially in Duchenne, there's a lot of celebratory talk, as there should be, about with standards of care, we've been able to extend our boys, our, our sons' lives longer. And that's a wonderful thing. But what the corresponding conversation has to be, but that means caregivers are also going to be caregiving longer. And we know that we don't honor and respect and care for our caregivers. We don't provide resources for them and help them do their job. And it is a full-time job. You can do it with love and you can want to do it and you can want more than anything to take care of your child, your son, or your sons. Those are realities that we have to address. So I know what you're saying is difficult. And I I know people sometimes rail against it and say, well, you should just be happy that you've still got your son here. One doesn't have to be exclusive of the other. We could be incredibly happy, but we have to also say, but I'm a whole person too. How do we take care of me so I can take care of him? So when you had that revelation, when Anthony graduated, what kind of followed on from there? What happened? I sort of spent about a year just sort of paralyzed. I mean, I, I sort of set up basic stuff for him, but I just couldn't even wrap my brain around how I'm going to 
and the things that he needed, like, you know, in my style in the past, I'm kind of over the top girl, right? So he wanted to go hiking. We did the Grand Canyon. He wanted this. We did Mm -hmm. that. I mean, I was used to very big solutions for him. And I sort of created a monster a little bit because, you know, he wanted to live independently and he wanted to do, do all these things. And all of a sudden I didn't have the resources or the energy for it. And because I had always been able to pull stuff off, I felt incredibly disappointed in myself. I felt scared. I felt really scared. Felt really guilty too for thinking, you know, why hadn't I hoped for the best? Why hadn't I thought, you know, I was more prepared for the dismal outcome than I was the good one. And Mm -hmm. it just seems so ironic. I fought so hard to extend his life. Like, why, why would I not have figured that out? But I didn't. So I spent about a year, just like a deer in headlights, just doing the bare minimum I could do to get by. But what was beautiful was during that time, I started taking care of myself and I started doing therapy and I started doing things to help me. I stopped helping other families. I stopped volunteering for everything, which was very painful decision. I walked away from education, which crushed me. I mean, it crushed me because that's my passion and what I felt I was really good at and my worthiness and all of it. I had to figure out that I was worthy and I was worthwhile just being me like not doing anything for anybody. If I just exist, am I good enough? I have a lump in my throat even saying that now because I felt I've always been raised to believe I have to earn my keep. And I just uh, couldn't do it anymore. So that year, terrifying as it was for me personally, I really had an awakening. When people used to say to me when I was, you know, all the years I've been a caregiver and people would say, well, you got to take care of yourself first and put that oxygen Mm -hmm. mask on first. I swear to God, I wanted to punch them because I was like, (laughs) if you do my life for five minutes, you will understand that that is nearly impossible to do. And I finally realized that as impossible as it was, I I had to do it. I had to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. Of course, nobody ever tells you how to do it. They just tell you you have to do it. There's no instruction book. Yeah, there's no instruction book on how to take care of yourself. They just love those cliches. And now I'm like the worst offender of those cliches. I'm always telling everybody that now. But at least I do understand that it is asking the world of somebody to actually start taking care of themselves in our position. It's not just some simple request. When you're in the trenches, when you're in that very intense caregiving phase with your children, or maybe you're newly diagnosed and you just don't ever think you'll laugh again or smile or have a life again, what what does a start look like? How did you start? How did you begin to make this more of your lifestyle as opposed to just that knowing that it needed to happen? I started with therapy. I started with the fact that I had spent so long trying to fix everybody else that I was the one that was unwell. Mm-hmm. And that was huge because, you know, I got sober from alcohol 12 years ago and I did a lot of work. I did a lot of step work and all the stuff that it took to get yeah. me sober and to make my life better. And so for many years, I kind of thought, oh, check, I did it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Yep. I do this and that for myself, but I was walking around with guilt and a lot of shame. 
mm-hmm. and my behavior, my defensiveness, and a lot of the other behaviors that I had that kept me disconnected from other people came from that shame. Mm-hmm. And no wonder I felt isolated and lonely. It, it doesn't have anything to do with Duchenne. Duchenne just poured the gasoline on the fire. It was me. So for yeah. me, I started with real work. I started doing trauma work. I started asking for help. And, and yeah, I've you got, never done you that. Right I've always been the help, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got right in there. And I think, you know, I had a conversation on, on this podcast with my own counselor a number of months ago. And we talked about this sort of the fear of saying, I want somebody to help me. And I had an awareness that literally the next morning after Joseph was diagnosed, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what, what do I do? And then just thinking, I'm going to need a really good therapist. I'm going to need somebody to help me through this. But it doesn't happen in isolation. And I always encourage people to, I'm like, don't wait till you're falling apart to say, I'm going to go see a counselor. I always say it's an analogy like driving a car, right? I don't wait till my engine burns up to change the oil. I go, I do regular maintenance. There's nothing wrong with that. But what did you do other than that? Because you did something really interesting about your living arrangement (laughs) with your son. So Share with us um, how you handled that. Yeah, well, you know, not everybody has this option in their life. So my ex-husband, my son's father, got married right away after we got divorced. And I love his wife. Like, we became best friends. And she signed on to our family. She didn't have kids of her own. She signed on to our family with all the courage and wholeheartedness that you could ever imagine from another woman. And so that was helpful for many years. Mm -hmm. So when they saw me going downhill and, you know, my ex-husband always traveled. So, you know, he was kind of limited in what he could do to really help because he travels for work. I think they saw me drowning Mm -hmm. and they called me up and were like, look, we're gone for the summer. We're on the road. They're in the entertainment industry. So they would go out for months at a time. And they were like, instead of you go securing another home and paying all this money and having to have three jobs and us paying support and all of this stuff, why don't you just come live here while we're gone this summer and you Mm -hmm. can use this time to get yourself together? You know, the boys had rooms there and, you know, why don't we try to look at this as like a family issue instead of just you doing it all and us trying to figure out how we're going to support you? Because that's not working. So I was just so desperate that it, I said, okay. I mean, that is one of those situations where ego really could have gotten in the way, you know? And Mm -hmm. I just, I didn't even have the energy to have ego anymore. I just was like, whatever, please let me go somewhere to be safe. I I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. So I went and they were gone for most of the summer. And I had a few months to just not have bills and to get myself together. And I sold most, I went from like a 3000 square foot house to nothing and sold everything. And so it just gave me a lot of breathing space. Well, when they came back, it was kind of funny because they were like, you know, this really works because when we're gone, you can do all this. And when we're home, you could leave, you could go do your thing, travel, work from, cause I have now a job I can work remotely. Well, you could work from different places. And I thought, so I really, honestly, I had to let my ego go and I had to think out of the box and I just 
got creative. I was like, we don't have a normal situation. Why am I trying to create this normal life? Like be crazy. If I could do anything, what would we do? So I bought an RV and I popped it on their property because they had an acre. And when they were gone, I was lived in the house. And then when they were home, I would live in my RV, but I would take off and travel or I would do whatever. The boys never had to move. We just sort of circulated around them. And then COVID hit. Well, then they're in the entertainment industry. So they stopped traveling altogether. Mm-hmm. My business got great because I'm in mortgages. So I was refining everybody under the sun at like two point whatever. So I started doing really well. And so we've just stuck with it. I mean, they really saved my butt. I mean, they did. And rightly so, you know, they got to participate. They got to do their part. Sure. And it was just, it was huge. And I couldn't, I can't. I can't be a martyr anymore. I can't say, oh, woe is me because I've got support now. Mm -hmm. That was a big deal. Like, who am I if I'm not struggling? And that's the other part. Here's what's even more daunting, especially being a mom in my scenario with with my kid. Think about the guilt that I feel if I'm happy. Who Mm -hmm. am I if I'm happy? Will you have people that love you? Will you have people that support you if you're happy? Mm-hmm. Like that was almost more terrifying to me than having problems. The drama, the drama was your fuel. Yeah. Yeah. The drama was my fuel. I was addicted to drama for sure. And I definitely found that I was addicted to the drama and I was addicted to the woe is me and the complaining. You know what it was when I got to the bottom of it? I wanted so desperately for someone to come in and save me from my life that I thought all the complaining and all the woe is me and all the stories and all of the kudos I got from everybody for being Mm -hmm. such a hero was going to provide me that relief. And it never did. It was like a drug. Like I couldn't get enough of it. Like no matter Mm -hmm. how much I got, it never alleviated the loneliness and it never alleviated the burden. I mean, nobody was coming to ride in and save me from my life. And I'm just spent years thinking the more I complained or the more I talked about it, surely someone would come ride in and save me, you know? And you talk about that, Jill, you and I talked about it, that who is it ultimately? It's me. Rides in. It's That's me right. and yeah, you said that thing I got going on, which for me is a big piece of it, is the spiritual part, because I, I don't do it alone. I obviously believe that we are all very connected, and mm-hmm. I feel less lonely and more connected now than I ever have in my entire life once I figured that out. But but even though we're all connected, it is, it's solely my responsibility. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm alone in the sense that I have to make a decision to get better. I have to make a decision to reach out to people for help. What's the response been other than with your ex-husband and his wife? Has it changed friendships? Has it changed relationships for you? Yeah, I had to let go of some people that were, you know, kind of negative and weren't helpful and were feeding that that victim storyline. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I realized that, you know, like speaks to like, right? So if I'm walking around and I'm a victim all the time, like, who am I surrounding myself with? Who am I attracting? Right. Mm -hmm. So I had to change. And one of the things I learned in therapy was, you know, I could ask for new friends or more supportive people in my life or a new love or whatever it is I wanted to have. But until I became what I was asking for, I wasn't going to get that. 
So I Mm -hmm. had to start becoming what I wanted to attract. And as hokey as that sounds, it's the truth. And once I started being more brave in solving my things and not shuffling my stuff off onto other people or unloading or emotionally dumping on everyone I could find to listen to me and to become a healthy person spiritually and financially and emotionally. That's when I started attracting healthy people that were all those things, but I had to actually become it first before I could warrant that. And I think what's so important is is to understand that you're not saying this lightly, like just flippantly, like just become that person. This is work. This is blood, sweat, and tears. This isn't just you snap your fingers or you read a couple of self-help books and pop into therapy for a couple of times. I mean, you're talking about life-changing, transformational work where you set your mind to it and you committed. I did. And it's not without, it's not without pain and battle scars. It was super painful because I had to get to the core. I mean, I spent years just saying, well, of course, look what my situation is. Look at my circumstances. Who wouldn't be a drunk? Who wouldn't be a defensive person? Who wouldn't be very difficult to be around all the time? Well, maybe that's true, but you're going to be alone because who wants to be around that? (laughs) <laughs> or you're going to be around a lot of other people who are the, the same, same way, way, right? It yeah, I attracted the same people where woe is me and it's all about the circumstances and they're all just victims of their circumstance. And yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, I had to make a lot of changes. I had to watch my behavior and be accountable and, you know, mostly let go too of all of the conditioning and the programming and all the things I had learned that were not serving me anymore. I mean, those behaviors, you know, defensiveness and all, a lot of those behaviors that I had or, you know, the bravado, I'll call it bravado because I wasn't even brave, but the, you know, the hero journey and all of those behaviors that I had were all very valuable behaviors that I needed when I was younger to survive. And that's great. It got me through that time. But growing up and realizing those behaviors don't serve me anymore. All they do is keep people away. Joe, when we talk about you as a mom, because that is that is part of who you are, is, is a mom to your two boys. We look at the needs of, of Anthony, because that's what, you know, kind of how we started. And we're coming full circle now. So what's something that you may have in the past done or provided or been committed to or really worn yourself out doing and feeling like you can't let go of it or you can't let someone else do it. What's an example of something you had to let go or you had to shift and and it looks different now in your day-to-day life as a caregiver? My standards have dropped. I mean, he needed perfection before, not which is a silly lie because it's not like I was doing it perfectly. But in my mind, I thought it was. So letting other people do it not so perfectly, you know, I had to I had to get to that. I was like, well, as long as you give them back to me in one piece, I can fix whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and yeah, it's worth totally the break. It's worth the break. So there's that. And then the other thing is I really monitor my reactions when I'm with him. If I'm sighing a lot and eye rolling, and here's how I'll know. He started saying sorry all the time. That's what prompted that initial post was because like, sorry, mom, sorry, mom. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, 
I've got to be making him feel that way. I've got to be making him feel like a burden. Mm -hmm. And it'd be because, you know, I'm tired and I'm like, Oh God, really? Do you really need that? Or can you just live without it? Or it really was my attitude. And now if I go more than a day where I'm apologizing, Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. If I find myself saying that for more than one day, I, I elicit help because it creeps up on me. You know, I think I'm okay until I'm not. And then it's too late to fix it or it takes a lot to fix it. And, you know, I cut things. I mean, I take shortcuts on stuff. I get volunteers, you know, it's Halloween. I don't want to take my 22 year old trick-or-treating, but you know, he's on the spectrum. So he's still childlike in a lot of ways. And trick-or-treating to him is Halloween's the biggest day of the year to him almost. So I can't not let him do that, but I I don't want to do that. I've done that for years and I I don't feel like it. So, you know, I reached out and I'm blessed and fortunate, but I I have cultivated relationships strategically. And I reached out to his old MDA counselors and they came over and they took him out trick-or-treating, you know, and he had a far better time with them than he would have with me. You know, I I don't want to be there. I mean, but that's on honesty. And I, you're not even supposed yeah. to say that. I'm not even supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say, oh, it's all so joyful. It's not. I don't want to do that. And I he knows it. it. He knows that. Yep. And it's so interesting. I love that you just brought that up because Joseph, who's my youngest, he left for college this year. And, you know, in the, in the world of Duchenne, you know, Joseph's been in a power wheelchair for five years. He needs a ton of help to get through his days. It's a really big deal to launch him, you know, off to college and on a Big Ten campus. And it was almost like a full-time job this summer, just coordinating, you know, all of his personal care assistance and what his schedule would be like. And he wanted to live in a regular dorm with his best friend. And so getting modifications to the bathroom and just, it was just a list, list after list. And I kid you not. So he, and he's my youngest. So, so my older two are launched out into the world. And there were so many people who, you know, they haven't checked on me for, you know, the 15 years of his diagnosis, but all of a sudden Joseph leaves for college and they're like, how are you? You've got to be miserable. You must be so sad. And I just started oh. saying, I am great. What? I am so good. Um, Come on. What are you doing without him? And I'm like, oh, I'm uh, sleeping. <laughs> I'm doing nothing. I'm, I'm uh, sitting outside at night. I, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where I'm like, I am unapologetically absolutely fine. And I tell Joseph all the time that I miss him. I think the thing that was most compelling to me is I tease him, I call him, and and I'll say to him frequently, so Joseph, how's it going? And he's like, you know, totally fine, Mom, I'm great. And I will tease him and say, do you miss me? And every single time he'll say, um, no, not really. (laughs) And then he's like, and then he'll say, I mean, that's okay, right, Mom? And I'm like, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. You're good. You are okay. And I think that I tell my daughter this, that there are two parts to taking care of yourself. It's doing it. And then the second half of that is doing it unapologetically, not apologizing for it. I'm super happy. Joseph's amazing. And no, I'm not falling apart. And I will, I'm not apologizing for that. I'm not a better mother. I wouldn't be a better mother if I was grieving and falling apart and having a meltdown because Joseph is following his dreams and left for college. The truth is... I'm tired. I want to go Mm -hmm. do some things for me, you know, 
that's the truth. And I'm sorry if that's not popular, but that's the truth. So it's, but it's, it's just a little easier to solve things when you actually start with the truth instead of what you think you're supposed to be saying or your value, you know, a lot of, I mean, like who, who are we, if we don't have to care for our sons, like we've lost our mm-hmm. entire identity. So when, when we talk about that first, the quote that you posted on social media about, you know, what a burden it is on a child to see the unlived life of their parent. So you shared what that unlived life sort of looked like. What does the lived life of Jill look like? What is that? What does that different life now look like? Well, I'm focusing on work and making money, partly again, so I can put Oliver through college and so I can get a house for Anthony so he can be more independent. We can have caregivers in there and things like that. So sure. granted, you know, financially, I'm still really trying to make money to make their lives better. I have a new relationship and we have traveled a little bit. Well, actually quite a bit. <laughs> And that is really new. And the one thing that's been a big deal about that is that I've had to learn, really, really learn how to separate it. And when we go travel, I'm not spending my entire time talking about Duchenne and Anthony. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm present. I'm present with him and I'm compartmentalize things. That's been a big change. When I have a night by myself, I don't read about Duchenne. I don't talk to people about Duchenne. I don't talk about my kids. I'm like, what's going to bring me joy? A bath and a book, a hike or dressing up and going dancing. Like what is going to bring me joy? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to go do. I don't think about Duchenne or talk about it anymore or think about my kids or talk about them anymore unless I'm with them and doing the kid thing. When I'm In other circumstances, I try to fully be enjoying those circumstances. So it is a little bit of discipline, you know, to compartmentalize like that. But it is really effective for me because I really do lean into the breaks when I get them, you know, like I never have before. How do you think your kids would describe you now? I mean, they know I'm happier and they're happy that I'm happier. And I think it's a relief to them. You know, like another example, I finally paid Anthony's van off after years of paying that stupid van. You know how expensive those stupid things are. But I had that payment forever, so I couldn't have my own car. I mean, I drove a handicapped vehicle, whether I was with him or not. And so I gave him the vehicle and he can have caregivers drive it. And I went and bought a truck to pull my RV so I could take and park it by the beach Mm -hmm. or whatever I wanted to do. And the truck was kind of expensive. And that was a huge step because he really needs another van. I really should have bought him another van and had another Mm -hmm. van payment. And I can't do it. (laughs) I just, I want a truck I can go take and go camping for the weekend by myself or go up skiing. Last year, I went skiing by myself for my birthday. It was the most liberating weekend I'd had in years. My boys are like, right on, right on. We'll drive the crappy van. We don't care. Like, we're so Mm -hmm. happy that you're doing your own thing. We're okay. Like, we're okay. And, And my other son, Oliver's literally said to me, mom, you have sacrificed so much for us. It's just... It's just really time for you to just do your thing. So, Joe, when we're talking to, you know, other parents, other, let's say moms in particular, because you talk in particular about the, the special <laughs> pressures on women about 
our role in motherhood and what, what we should be, how can we be there for each other? How can we be supportive of each other? Well, I'd like to see some new stuff. You know, you see a lot of women listening to other women complain. Yeah, that's what I did. I always, I have all my Duchenne moms, all you ladies that I've known for, you know, 18 years, I think, you know, and I can call any one of you and, and I am going to feel better after that phone call. I mean, let me be clear. Mm -hmm. There is nothing like talking to another person who you really feel like they understand the intricacies of your challenges. So I'm not dismissing that by any means. I'm not saying that's not valuable, but I don't have as often someone call and say, this book really helped me or, Hey, let's go do a girl's weekend or, Mm -hmm. Hey, let's have somebody in my family watch all of our people and we'll go take a hike or, you know, like actually doing something together to, to encourage each other to get out and not have our whole lives be about our kids, you know, to actually live it and actually show each other how to do it. Mm-hmm. seems to me that'd be more beneficial than just the gift of the gab. I think you're doing it. <laughs> I think you are. I think you're showing a whole lot of people right now how to do it and what it can look like. And and this is your plan and it's what it's your truth. It's your journey. It's what works for you. But I I absolutely think that you are leading by example and saying, I want to be a whole person and that is okay. What do you think's next for you? I have dreams of, you know, writing and going back to my teaching and speaking and things that I make my heart sing at some point. I think it's, you know, it's, it used to be big goals and kind of stopped doing that because it's not the places I'm going to go and the things I'm going to buy that is going to make me feel like my life is worthwhile. It's going to be every day figuring out how I can connect to other people, how I can show up and be honest and be vulnerable. It's just on such a smaller scale now. I've learned the simple joy is just eating some good food and sitting in the hot tub for sunrise at six in the morning, like I did the other morning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of hitting the ground running, pursuing happiness. Like, you know, we lost a very important woman in our community. Her Mm -hmm. son is still alive and she's not. And that shook me to the core because I thought, well, that's not supposed to happen. I mean, I pretty much feel like I'm going to live at least as long as Anthony does, because God knows I got to take care of him. So nothing's going to happen to me. Well, then we lost our dear, dear friend in the community unexpectedly. And I realized that's not the truth. Honestly, as hokey as the sound, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I just, it, it, I realized that happiness and joy is a freaking emergency. It's an emergency. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. I am not putting every single day and I don't have to go on some big trip, although I, I, I have been blessed enough to do that. And that's what everybody probably sees on Facebook, but I have many, many days where it's just the doldrums of the day that I've got to do, but I yep. find ways to just pursue joy as if it were an emergency. Mm-hmm. I love that. That is so profound. None of us know, right? I mean, nobody knows what their expiration date is. We have no we have no no idea what's coming next in the next 
hour as we walk out of our doors. You know, we're all, we are all one phone call away, one accident away from, you know, being brought to our knees. We just don't know what's coming. Well, the other day, you know, I was really exhausted and I had, you know, four page list of stuff I have to get done, just like Mm -hmm. everybody else we know. And I took a red pen and I, I circled three impactful things that would make a difference. And I blew the rest of the list off. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's where I'm at now. I'm not getting as much done. I'm not reaching expectations like I used to. And I just don't care. I just, yeah. you know, I don't care. I just care far more about being happy. I'm not going the distance just to prove something about myself anymore. It's okay if I just uh, sit and watch the sun set instead of making dinner for everybody. Let them go order some. I've always thought you were awesome, but I I love this evolved version of you even more than before. You don't need me to say that you're worthy because you know you are and that's all that matters. But I am going to say I'm so proud of you. I'm so inspired just for you to share your own personal evolution and where you've been and how far you've come and in what life looks like for you right now. I think you're going to make a big impact on a lot of people. Oh, I love you. I just love you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.